Okay, uh, welcome along to yet another We Happy Few 506 podcast. As you know, and I do this every week, I number them completely randomly. Uh, and so this one I'm going to call episode 35. In fact, I'm going to call it episode K35, which we'll come on to a little later. How clever was that? I thought it was a pretty good segue, didn't you? Uh, we have So clever. Thanks, mate. We have a really interesting lineup. Usually we're just talking waffle to one dude, but actually we have got people with uh, intellectual prowess on today, which is, uh, makes me totally out of my depth. We're joined by the lovely Diane, obviously, and Leighton, but we've got Henry back because this is part two of his podcast, technically. And then we have the behemoth himself, Sol David, has joined us. Thank you so much, Sol. Very good to be here. I've heard a lot about this podcast. I'm looking forward to being part of it. Oh, good, good. And I'm pronouncing your name correctly, am I? You are. Very good pronunciation. I, I get everything from Saul to, I mean, a lot of people just don't get Saul at all. So I say like Paul, but with an S, but that doesn't always help. Right. No, I'm confused now. So is it is it Saul now? I don't know. Anyway. So uh, if I mispronounce things, Scott Gibson uh, picks me up on them and then writes it on Twitter afterwards as well. Scott Gibson joins us, the wonderful Scott Gibson, who, of course, played Akak Haldane. We're going to come on to all that when we do our crossover. So, uh, so I, before we get into the nitty gritty, obviously, we're talking about K35 and all that business. Uh, I think it would be remiss at the moment if I didn't ask you just one question uh, about the current situation in the Ukraine. Do you want to duck that completely or can I ask you? No, go ahead. I'm afraid I'm being dragged slowly but surely into it in the press. Um, Just wrote a piece in the Times today about books that might help you to understand what's going on. You know, good luck with that, of course, but uh, no, feel free. Okay, good. Uh, Leighton, can we get a link to those books afterwards and post it on this pod? With this oh, pod? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's totally wonderful. I guess, and I, 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 I worry that we've come out of two years of people having hysterical nonsense about COVID and wearing masks being like the Holocaust and all that sort of lunacy. But can I say, are there any current parallels to Europe in the 30s, late 30s? in what's going on in Ukraine or not? If the answer is no, just say no. No, there are. And actually, I'm a big one for uh, warding people off the idea that everything happening today has a, you know, has a resonance. Of course, we can understand why uh, Ukraine has the aspirations it does, uh, and similar with Russia by looking back at history. But going beyond that, and to be specific to your question, there really are some scary parallels, actually. I mean, I think, um, one, one, was it the Defence Secretary who said a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, this was beginning to uh, seem like another Chamberlain coming back after the uh, Munich um, agreement. Um, and it's not far off that. And um, what I mean by that is that I, I think Russia has been allowed to get away with too much and it kept thinking it could keep pushing. So if we take that as, as you know, the most basic parallel, we've got something very similar here. I mean, a lot of people think Putin's gone completely crazy. I don't think he has, but I think he's horribly, horribly misjudged the situation. He felt he could keep pushing. I mean, after all, the, the sort of stuff he's doing in Ukraine at the moment, he's already done as I as I mentioned in my piece about the uh, the books that might help you understand what's going on. He's done it. He did it in Grozny. I mean, Grozny was first, and Grozny was forgotten about partly because Grozny is uh, the Caucasus. It's a long way away from Europe. It's a bit of the world that most Europeans and certainly Americans probably don't have much of a handle on. Interesting enough, and this is a complete sidebar. Um, it's where my family originally came from. Not not Grozny itself, but from the Caucasus. I'm Armenian originally, so. Uh, that was a long time ago. 
ago. And th- that doesn't give me any particular insight into that place. But he does tell you he started off there. He raised Grozny uh, town, that is uh, the capital of Chechnya, completely to the ground in 2000. There was a bit of reporting on it, but not that much. Uh, and he destroyed uh, the country using the sort of uh, methods he's now begun to resort to because he hasn't got his way with the initial uh, storming into Ukraine. Uh, and it led to an absolute you know, horror show. Then he moved on, of course, as we know, to Ukraine. And I, I won't labour the point here, but it, there definitely are similarities with the with the unwillingness to take on Hitler, partly because we thought that the bigger enemy was communist Russia, ironically, uh, until he had finally crossed that, that the, the final line. And that line, interesting enough, was not Poland. It was actually the invasion of Czechoslovakia in, in March of, of 1939. That was the final crossing of the red line. And that's really the beginning of the end, as it were, of Hitler, in, in my view. And I think this will be the beginning of the end of Putin. The, the problem is how many people are going to have to die before, before that happens. Right. Thank you very much. So, and I will get on to why we're here. I just, I don't get many intellectuals on here. So, so please can I ask you this question as well. It is another oh. sidebar, but it, it, I think it's relevant. If you'd have just said no to my last question, there was something I wanted to lead on to. And that is um, over the last couple of years, the, the conspiracy theories that, that have been in the, in, in the press uh, uh, and people in the QAnon and all the COVID stuff. Is it me or does it reek of rehashed anti-Semitic tropes? Yeah, well, that's an element to it. I mean, I think um, we, we would be mad to imagine that the, the QAnon stuff, obviously there's a specific element to it, which seems completely, you know, off, off, off the moon, as it were. But conspiracy theories play, have always played a big part in, 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 in culture. And we can go back a long way uh, looking at conspiracy theories. So what conspiracy theories do is that they give you certainty out of chaos. And in my view, history is happenstance, really. The way things turn out, it's, it's you know, it, little factors here or there. Nothing's preordained. Um, but that chaos theory in which your life can be taken away at any moment because you happen to be living in Ukraine, for example, in 2022, rather than neighboring uh, countries, is people can't really get their heads around that. So they like to think that that the great events of the world, be it, you know, 9-11 or anything else, the death of Diana, actually that there's some design behind it. There's, and it, 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 it makes them feel better, believe it or not. And it gives them some kind of control, what, what people can't bear, particularly, I think the people who, by the way, who are very susceptible to stuff like QAnon, and I include members of my own family, by the way, so I'm not lashing out indiscriminately here. I, yeah, exactly. I bet, I bet everyone on this call has got someone um, uh, who they know who, and formally respected who's been drawn into all of this. But I think w- what, it, what it gives you is a, a chance to take back control, as it were. Um, it's, it's not religion per se, but it's not a million miles away. And it, 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 it makes people feel like they've got a little bit more say in what goes on in the world, because all of a sudden they've been led into the secret and that, and that empowers them, uh, so to speak. Uh, but that it is uh, 99% of conspiracy theories, a load of nonsense. Uh, I can assure you that is the case. And, and one of the reasons I know that uh, uh, is because sooner or later, history cannot keep things quiet. Sooner or later, we'll always find out about, about conspiracies. We found out about some real conspiracies in the past. But the fact that we've never, you know, actually identified anyone else involved in the death of JFK, for example, would tell me after 50 years and an awful lot of looking, there isn't anyone else to find. Um, so apologies if I've got, got off, off, off beam a little bit on that one. But um, no, it, it's, it's, it's very of the moment. But, it, 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 you know, don't think this is a unique thing. It, it may have been heightened, of course, by 
by uh, COVID and by other things happening. I think, interestingly enough, I mean, I mean you, you know, one quick point to make about military history, which is what I do, and its popularity. I think there's no question that getting into a uh, a, a post Second World War scenario where it's very unlikely citizens are going to be called upon to fight ever again, which is what we thought before a couple of weeks ago. Um, the only way you can get close, unless you're a regular soldier, the only way you can get close to that experience is by reading about it. But you know, I, the reason it is such a crossing of, of the Rubicon, the, the the invasion of of Ukraine, is because citizens and civilians are being drawn into a war in a way that we didn't imagine we'd see in Europe. So it's utterly shocking. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Yeah, quite. It is very disturbing. Uh, right. So let's get on to why we're really here. Uh, we want to talk K35, don't we, Leighton? And we want to talk about the possible supergroup that then is Henry Sledge and Sol David. Supergroup. Super. <laughs> I wrote that down in my notes. <laughs> it just is historical. Oh, we have to laugh at whatever Matt says. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever Matt says, laugh up or Historical supergroup. Come on, I thought that was really Can I good. say it like you said it? Historical supergroup. <laughs> Such a tool. Um, so how did you two come to find each other, if you don't mind me asking? Do so would you like to... Uh, well, you, you, you go, Henry, actually, because, um, well, it's a, it's a mutual contact, very sure. well known, I'm sure, to your uh, uh, podcast. And, um, you know, I, when I, as I was finishing the book, I hadn't had any contact with Henry. Of course, I knew who he was. And I was, um, you know, sending it out to various historians. What, and was contacted by a number of people actually who said, yeah, we've heard on the grapevine that you're doing this. I'd done an event with Richard B. Frank, who's the historian in question, um, last year. And he said, what are you working on next? And I mentioned the fact that I was doing the story of K35 all the way through the Pacific. And he said, I'd be very interested to read it. So it was on the back of having read it. And by the way, uh, giving me a wonderful and incredibly generous because he, you know, he's busy. He's trying to finish his second volume of his, what is going to be the most fantastic history, as I, I'm sure you all, you all know of, of the Pacific War in the round, you know, starting in 37 all the way to 45. Uh, so he's very busy trying to finish off his second volume and he took the time out. Uh, to not only read my manuscript, but to give me very detailed notes. Now, some historians can be quite prickly when they're given advice by other historians. I'm not one of those historians, uh, not least because the Pacific War is not my particular area of expertise. I'm, I'm getting more knowledgeable, of course. Uh, and I very much believe that every book can be improved. And if you've got someone like Richard B. Frank advising you on what where you might want to tinker with things a little bit, um, you know, you couldn't buy that, that, that sort of assistance to the book. And it was off the back of my conversations with Richard that he put me in touch with Henry. Of course, he has, he, you know, he has a relationship with Henry that's already uh, existing. That's wonderful. I can't believe he did that. That's so cool. Because often certain, like you say, about historians not taking notes, certain actors aren't very good at taking notes either. I mean, I'm 
wonderful, but uh, certain actors aren't great at taking notes. <laughs> what, I, don't know, I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> By the way, I've just got a, I've just got a very quick anecdote, and I hope, I, I hope this doesn't sound too boastful. There, there was a film made a couple of years ago, which didn't do very well, actually, called In Tebby, um, or Seven Days in Tebby, I think it was, in the United States. And that, that was partly based on a book I'd written a few years ago called Operation Thunderbolt. And anyway, cut a long story short, I was very excited, of course, and my book was sort of effectively being turned into a film uh but i got particularly excited when i heard that during the, the during the filming which took place i think either on malta or cyprus one of the mediterranean islands and they, they'd rebuilt the the terminal which was in uganda of course in 1976 mm-hmm. and um anyway the lead that that one of the two leads was rosamund pike and rosamund pike was playing the the german one of the two german terrorists who who i really flesh out in the book for the first time they, they really not much was known about those two um revolutionary cell terrorists and anyway the the, the bit of the anecdote is great is that a very good friend of mine was working on it in a real gopher role i mean he had no no you know it wasn't important at all and he happened to be walking past uh rosamund pike who was ta- you know having a break between takes and she was in the middle of reading my book so that that you know, I I've rarely seen people in the tube reading my books. So to have one of my favorite act, actors reading it yeah, while she was on set, uh, you know, about the story was was pretty fabulous actually. So um, yeah, she was doing her research, and I like to think you guys would be doing the same. Yeah, I mean, I just wing it, but Scott's a professional. Um, so she, I mean, I know, and it, she, and it shows. And it shows. <laughs> um we finished the last podcast with henry and then leighton looked a lot like my dog when i've not taken him for a long enough walk because there's so much he wants to get into so uh i'm gonna let him um i'm gonna let him take over in a little while but i wonder whether we could just maybe get your thoughts on the pacific the hbo show the pacific and a little chat with scott on it as well I mean, yeah, it's, it's, that's I, a very broad question. Uh, yeah, that, that's to, that's to me, is it? Yes. Um, I I I loved it. I mean, the production values off the chart. I mean, really phenomenal. And of course, you know, as is well known, huge huge sums of money went into that. And it had some of the best people in the business. Of course, is is also well known from the same team from Band of Brothers involved. But I've got quite an interesting anecdote from from uh, the screenwriter from Band of Brothers. And I, you'll tell me his name in a second, but I, I I've forgotten for a moment. He didn't write the screenplay or wasn't involved in the writing of the screenplay for the Pacific. And this is this will become relevant in a second. And I said, why not? Uh, I met him a couple of months ago and I said, why didn't you write the screenplay for the Pacific? You know, it was logical you would have moved on. And I hear now that he's working on the screenplay or at least has written the screenplay for the fine, you know, the tri- the fine, the, the the final part of the triptych, which is the story of the eighth uh, US Eighth Air Force operating out of the UK, which has just been filmed, I think, for Apple, same team again um, involved. And he said the reason he didn't is because uh, they used to dub the story of the Pacific, at least the story that they were going to tell, Band of Strangers. And that that was the that was the element that I thought was missing in that story. What where you had a coherent unit following all the way through for Band of Brothers, that, that in my view, is the, is the recipe for the success because you began to care about everyone's relationships, the, you know, the, the different officers, some wonderful, Winters, obviously, some not so wonderful, the original company commander. Um, you know, you, you've got a real kind of understanding of, of an organic group 
a company's just right, by the way, which is why, of course, I chose a company uh, to work work their way through the Pacific. It is the home for a lot of people in a military sense. You know, it's not the battalion. It's not the regiment. It's not the divisional. Although they're very proud of all of those. It's the company. The company is what what people consider to be home, um, you know, at which comes, of course, out so well in, in, in Henry's dad's book, you know, where he talks. You know, I, I quote that in my book, of course. So. The point I'm trying to make in relation to Pacific is wonderful production values, but the story's all over the place because it gets better when it gets to Peleliu and Okinawa. But of course, it starts right at the beginning, Guadalcanal, which is where the first Marine Division go in initially. And then it jumps around. Why does it jump around? Because they do not have a single company that they have enough information about to, to base on the script. Uh, or to base the script on. Therefore, they now in some ways it's an advantage what they do because it allows them to to go to some of the places that the First Marine Division didn't go to. Uh, you know, some of the iconic places it didn't go to. Uh, in, in particular, Iwo Jima, I suppose, is the most obvious uh, one in which you can build in the drama of that. But you've got a person involved in in Iwo Jima who basically has no connection or, or very loose connection to anyone else in the story. So it was interlinked stories, some of whom were connected, but most of whom weren't. And therefore, in my view, in, an, in, in a sense of a narrative, you know, and this is my, the historian talking as much as the guy who enjoys watching um, uh, historical dramas, I was quite confused about what was going on. It's like, where are we? And who, you know, who are we with now? So it jumped around a bit. And I think it lost the the unit, you know, that brotherhood power, that band of brothers. How could you call them a band of brothers when some of them were in units that were nothing to do with some of the other units? They weren't all, even all in the same division. I, I think that's right in saying. I mean, a couple of them weren't even in the 1st Marine Division. So that that was my feeling. Beaut- beautifully done. I mean, you know, and, and actually when it got to Peleliu and Okinawa, I think that's as good uh, a, a representation as I've seen of, the, of those um uh, those campaigns and particularly Peleliu, because Henry will know, you know, of course, his dad put Hen- uh, Peleliu on the map. But, uh, you know, if you ask, the, certainly in the UK, if you ask the average guy in the street, if, he, if he's ever heard of Peleliu, he, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't know. Um, uh, but he might have heard of Iwo Jima. Yeah, um, um, we we've spoken about this before, Scott. Do you have, do you have a kind of a, a rebuttal to that? My rebuttal to it, if I don't put words in your mouth, is that uh, you've got to give it two or three watches. Pacific. It's the show that you've got to watch two or three times. And by the time you watch it the third time through, you start to get the magic of it, the genius of it. And it is, I think, because you start to piece the stories together and you're not thinking, well, what's going on here? You're just appreciating how great it is. What say you to that, Scotty? I mean, you've got he's got some pretty good, uh, strong opinions on himself, Scott. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of the production itself, they had a lot of difficulty just trying to link everything together and you talk about the people involved the i mean let's be honest the egos involved um all around you know there 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 were a lot of disagreements and settling on one thing or one tack one course was extremely difficult um you know i haldane was in episode two we shot a sequence with uh, haldane and basalon which was cut out of there um you could have linked three five with uh two one having you know Haldane seen him at Guadalcanal just briefly and then you see him at Cape Gloucester briefly and linking it that way. And I know it was very difficult even for them to kind of, you know, with the final edit they had to get an independent someone completely separated from the whole production. Tim Van Patten directed three episodes. 
Um, he did a final pass and then it was given over to Playtone um, and they did the final edit. But the, I, it was a friend of Tim's in the industry that was watching a lot of it. And he said, you know, I just can't, everyone's wearing green and I can't, you know, you couldn't just connect from one person to the next, which is why I think people would on the first pass kind of, you know, maybe not get it, put it down, but then on the second and third, because you know the characters and the real men, um, then you can follow the story more. But um, yeah, from my perspective, I think they, they, they could have linked it a little better, but how to do that on the, on the scale of that project. It's just, uh, and then you have Dale die. A quick question on on historical accuracy. I mean, I've never seen any reference to Bas, but I may I may not have seen it, but I've never seen any reference to to Basilone meeting Haldane on Guadalcanal. So that that would have been purely artistic license if they had included that in there. Yeah, I mean, there was other you know artistic license involved, right? I mean, the 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 Rodriguez John Baster uh, um, Manny Bernthal. Um, Manny Rodriguez was not a real guy. He was a composite. Um, they had just this moment where when you see Barcelona stealing and, and his, his gang pillaging the, the, the army's uh, um, supplies and, and personal items and stuff. And it was Barcelona running past this bunker with a bag of booze. And it was the end of the day and it's colors, you know, so the flag goes down. So he turns around drops the bag you hear this big clank and you just see these feet coming out of a bunker and it's Haldane so they stop you know Haldane saluting Barcelona saluting and we sort of eyeball each other a little bit flag goes down you know scene ends and then Barcelona feeling like oh okay here we go I'm gonna catch shit or lose the booze or whatever and Haldane just looks at him and says carry on sergeant and off his way so not like they knew each other or knew of each other, but that sort of, and for uh, Bruce McKenna, who wrote that, he came up to us after, uh, I think we just finished filming from Video Village. He walked up and he was in tears. And he just was like, you know, wow, I spent so much time on this and obviously, and so connected to the characters and everything, but it's the first time it really hit me that both these guys die. Um, so just, you know, beautiful moment in terms of the story and the narrative and the piece, but historic, historically accurate, yeah. No, probably not. I think he could have done with more of that to sew it together. I think they possibly could have gone down that route a bit, bit further and just committed to it because it's, you know, it's not that well-known a story. Um, you know, to, to the lay person like me, I think they could have done that or just jumped in and just done, do you think we could have had a 10-part with the old breed? It's a good question. Absolutely. Do you think so, Henry, as well? Even Henry, do you think I, that could... You know, it, it's now in 2022, it, it's a lot easier to answer that. I mean, guys, I've, obviously, I'm going to be prejudiced in favor of that. And I mean, I always thought you could do that and call it K-3-5. And I mean, there's genius right there. You, but, you could have done it. You could have done it just with them. It was. It was a. It must have been a judgment call. I, Henry, you'll know better than me the sequence of events leading up to. You know, obviously, the, off the back of Band of Brothers, they they're thinking Pacific. It, it was a. It was brilliant concept. Um, let's right. do the Pacific. It had never been done before. The stories are off the scale, really. I mean, you know, and it goes without saying some of the stuff that I've come across, and and we know, it, of course, from from um, uh, Henry's dad's book anyway. But I think it could have been done with that that book alone, because of course, what it's always from from 
uh, Gene's perspective. But he brings in a broad cast of characters and they're all in the unit. So, you know, needless to say, his book is absolutely vital for my book. Apart from, and here's the problem, it starts in Peleliu. So you've got those two out of the four campaigns. Now, that's just, right. you know, from my, from my project, if you're going to tell the story of the Pacific War, it's best to start at the beginning and end at the end. Uh, uh, Gene isn't in all four campaigns, so he comes in. But the book was definitely good enough to, to base a, a miniseries on it. Uh, in terms of the richness of the material. And to go back to my comments about the Pacific before, it really gets going in Peleliu and Okinawa, in my view. And again, I'm probably biased because, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated with the K-35 story. But there was so much more to say about K-35 because not only did you have the original and great book um, with the old breed, you also had uh, some of the other guys coming out of the woodwork, so to speak, and writing their stories, which, of course, has been wonderful for me now those stories weren't available in 2005 six i can't remember when they were putting together the original idea for um for the pacific but they did have the guys and of course they based a lot of the main characters akak and some of the other guys bergen um on 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 real people and they were able, able to talk to those guys you know obviously sadly gene was no longer with us by then and you know it's it of course matt scott Layton, you guys know that as we know from Bruce and Kenna, I mean, they were told, and Bruce told us this in 2004 when my family was taken to Hollywood, and, and the original statement of purpose was laid out to us. Tom and Stephen wanted the entire panoply of the Pacific War. So right out of the gates, you have the top two guys, you know, the ones who are going to be stroking the checks for this, saying, yeah. whole Pacific War, we want that represented. It would have been awesome if Saul's book, Devil Dogs, was extant at that time unfortunately it was not but right there you've got a massive challenge and of course bruce has spoken to that you know we had the conversation on the, the zoom show back in september about that very issue you know we were told originally the miniseries was going to be five characters in 13 parts and um you know that that was always going to change i mean there there you get into the operational and logistical difficulties of bringing something like that to life. And then some characters are going to be eliminated and cast to the side. But um, yeah, that was always going to be a challenge stringing it all together. I think it would be a bit just, more, sorry, I was going to say, with going back to Bruce's, uh, what he said last September to us, I think if had they included flyboys by James Bradley, I think it would have probably been a lot more, confusing i don't think it has been as, as fluid as it was with just the lackey sledge mm-hmm. and bars alone so i think and I'm, and you're that's a good point lady and i mean listen helmet for my pillow is a genius of a book you know it's literally helmet for my pillow by robert lickey was one of the first books i read that got me interested in the pacific war i mean i remember being in my dad's study at 12 years old taking it off the shelf and asking him questions about it because he had made notes in it as he was in his mind laying the groundwork for with the old breed. I love that book. And I'm actually just handed it to my 13 year old to read. I think he's, his mind is on other things, but I want to do a reread of it myself, you know? So by saying, gosh, I wish they did all been K three, five, you know, I, I don't want to short shrift that book or anybody in the lucky clan by any means, you know, certainly don't want to do that. But Saul, to your point, do I think you could have taken K three, five and made a mini series out of it? Yeah. I think, I think there's enough rich, richness of material there to do that. It's just, as you said, you get into the problem of, well, Sledgehammer didn't get overseas until, you know, 
19, early 44 when he got to McKitty Bay at Pavuva. So do you think it would have been better then if they'd focused on Scott's character, Haldane, and say Gary Sweets, uh, Haney, and then mm-hmm. obviously we lose Haldane in, in Peleliu, and obviously the, the giving of the lighter from Haney to Sledge could have been, this is the next part of the story. Do you think that probably would have made it a lot more fluid? Yeah, they, they could have done that. I mean, the only issue, not a minor issue, by the way, but, uh, you know, the tiny issue is that, it, you know, from the perspective of my book, Akak only comes into the story, only comes into the story in Melbourne when he joins the um, uh, joins K35. So although he's on Guadalcanal, he's not with he's not with uh, K35. Having said all of that, bear, bear in mind, um, Band of Brothers was the story. Uh, where, where Band of Brothers really gets going in foot in foot. I know I know they build up with the training and the you know the original stuff, but most of the most of the uh, European theatre of operations is not covered by that book by any stretch of the imagination. So why they they absolutely insisted on covering the whole of the Pacific War? I don't know. My view, if if I'd been a producer of, of of a film with a historical mindset, I'd have said, what is the best single source book, or possibly a couple of sources that actually dovetail that we can use to base this miniseries on? And that's what they did, of course, for, with Band of Brothers, and that that is why I think it is a more coherent uh, project. But in many cases, is it, you know, there's an it's inferior in other ways. Um, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not casting aspersions here. We all have our own opinions, but they're both wonderful series. I mean, let's not let's not kid ourselves. But you're asking the direct question: Could it have been improved? I think it could have been, and I, I'm I'm with Henry on this. I'm afraid, and it's not, you know, uh, but but maybe it is bias actually because I've just written the story of K35. Henry is Sledgehammer's son, and 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 Sledgehammer's book is one of the great memoirs to come out of any war not just the second world war i mean it genuinely is and that's not just me saying it as you well know so you know helmet for my pillow was a good book is it as good as um uh, with the old breed i don't think so and i'm i'm not going to offer an opinion on that no same <laughs> <guy>. <laughs> <laughs> i mean guys let let not say... vociferously though henry no 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 i mean let me say this it, the purpose is not, and I know nobody has to be told this. This is not about, oh gosh, how can we make Eugene Sledge the center of it? I'm thrilled that the Pacific War is continuing to get attention and continuing to see new scholarship by people like Saul David. I mean, when Richard Frank told me in a chance phone call a few months ago, which is how Saul, from my perspective, how I came into Saul's picture. You know, have you have you heard of Saul David's book, Devil Dogs? And I I said, no, I haven't, because Saul, I I had actually been on a bit of a hiatus from the Pacific War, as Matt and Leighton and Scott know. And I was just coming back into the four. And he said, uh, Richard Frank said, yeah, Saul David's writing a book about K-35. And I said, that that's wonderful. I'm I'm intrigued. I love it. And he said, I'm sure if I tell him you'd like to read the manuscript, he would let you. And I said, I I would be honored to. Um, And I, I asked Richard, you know naively i guess but seriously i said does my father appear in in the story and richard is a very erudite serious-minded individual and very quiet and he just started laughing and he said your father is a central character in the second half of the book so yeah you could say he mentions him and i said okay that's great i'd love to read the manuscript and so saul then very kindly contacted me and and that's that's how i came into it Oh, we, we are we are stating now that it was your mum that wrote the book, though not your dad. We, we figured that out last time. <laughs> well, you said what? Now that it was I put my that one on Twitter, I put it on Twitter. I got oh, for that. Jeez, thank you, Matt. You know, <laughs> getting to know you has enriched my life in so many ways. I, I... 
Speaking <laughs> of getting to know, um, so, uh, so you're an English Armenian. Why K three five? That's um, a Leighton's question. I've stolen one of Leighton's questions. Well, uh, the sequence of events is this. I mean, why the Pacific, I suppose, is, is really... Mm-hmm. If I answer that first, you, you'll begin to understand how I ended up with K-35. So, you know, I've written a lot of military history. I've just written a couple of uh, Second World War books that were set in the European theatre. And uh, I was thinking, I was looking for my next next story. Now, I'd actually just worked on an American-Canadian story, which is the story of the, the first special service force. So I was already over in you know, North America in terms of my thinking about where are all the sources and, where, you know, what new stuff can I find out? Um, and I was reading uh, off the back of that book that I had written about the force. I was reading uh, a, a very good biography of Truman by A.J. Bain, the, the uh, historian A.J. Bain. And it's what's so striking about that book is that when you begin it, he's, it when, when, when Truman, of course, you know, for him, out of the blue becomes president. Vice presidents don't expect, generally speaking, they're going to become president. And they don't tend to be major political figures, of course, um, uh, then and now. Uh, And he becomes uh, president out of the blue, of course, because Roosevelt dies. And all of a sudden on his desk is, this is what's going on. And what's astonishing about Truman is he didn't know anything about the the conduct of the war. They'd really kept him on the sidelines. And what he particularly didn't know is anything about the nuclear weapons. So I was reading this and, and uh, Bain describes how there's this enormous uh, battle going on in uh, Okinawa, of course. Uh, and at the same time, he's getting, getting given all this information about, you know, the fact that we've got this nuclear weapon, we're developing it, we don't know if it'll work. It could be a real game changer. I mean, can you imagine going from knowing virtually nothing to having all this stuff on your plate? And what this reminded me is that in Europe, we're so Eurocentric about the way we see the Second World War. We assume it ended with Hitler's overthrow. And yes, of course, the Japanese had to be dealt with, but that was a kind of side issue. No, what you realize when you when you read the Bain biography and what, of course, I realized now having immersed myself in the Pacific is that this is a massive uh, uh, effort that's going in to to deal with another major threat to, you know, effectively the Western world. And until it's dealt with, the war won't end. And more importantly than that, of course, we know when the war did end, but they had no idea in, in the spring of 1945. So there was a very, very, very good chance that the war was going to go on into 46 and possibly 47. And then we would think about this, the end of the Second World War in a very different way. So having processed all of this as a historian, I thought, why don't we know more about this? And why don't I know more about this? So that got me thinking about writing about a book on Okinawa, what's already out there, what sort of sources are there? That's when I first came across uh, came across books like uh, With the Old Breed. And off the back of writing about Okinawa, I thought, wouldn't it be a great thing to follow a single unit all the way through the Pacific War? I mean, I was I was bitten by the Pacific War. And, you know, I should preface that, by the way, with with adding that bitten by it in the sense that the, just the sheer drama of it, that the scale of it, the the horror of it. You know, even if you look at some of the really nasty fighting in, during the D-Day campaign, and I know casualties are very he- heavy during the Normandy campaign, they don't really come close to the to the depths of savagery in which the Marines and the U.S. Army are fighting uh, as they move their way through the Pacific. And again, I thought this needs to be brought to the attention of a UK stroke European audience, because we've got no idea what these young men went through fighting in the Pacific. And uh, but following a single unit seemed to me to be the way to do it. I'd seen the Pacific and I was well aware that they'd used multiple different characters. Uh, and I thought, why not a single unit? Why was that book 
uh, why was why was that miniseries not based on a single book? Because that book didn't exist. So you could say I was way behind the times because, uh, by the way, um, you know, if I was ever thinking about the possibility of a drama coming out off the back of K35, it won't because it's been done. OK, so I knew that. But I still thought, what an amazing story. And because partly because of the Pacific and partly because of With the Old Breed, a number of other guys in K35 had been persuaded to tell their stories, which is the point I made uh, uh, just, just a little bit earlier. And as a result of that, you've got four or five really first-rate um, memoirs, uh, none of them to compare with the old breed, but, you know, that, that's, that's uh, you know, that, it's a relative, relative point. But you've got four or five really good books, uh, McHenry, uh, Bergen. Um, Mace, we maybe leave on the sideline, because I have my doubts about that, as, as I know Henry does, elements of it, you know. I, it, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's an edge to Mace's book that, that uh, makes, frankly, anyone reading it feel uncomfortable. And I'm sure he was like that in real life, you know, always pushing the boundaries, uh, you know, a kind of a, a tricky... Am, am I talking about someone who know what, no one knows who I'm talking about here? Because if I am, I'll, I'll shut down on Mace. But, but Henry, do you want to have any... Have you got any comments to make about Mace? I would rather not. Okay. I've avoided his book on Henry's recommendation as well, so I've not touched that. I throw <laughs> my two pence in. Yeah, it, it's still a it's still a useful book from my perspective because he he was a, a member of a rifle platoon who fought in Okinawa, and and the the uh, the best the best book, of course, of of guys who are in the rifle platoon as opposed to mortars, which is what uh, Sledge Sledgehammer and Bergen are in, is of course McHenry's book. But McHenry's last campaign is Peleliu, so there's a there's a there's a gap really. Uh, telling the story from the from the perspective of of you know a guy in a rifle platoon, which of course is at the you know literally at the at the tip of the spear. So you want to know what those guys are thinking. I, I had to read between the lines. I think as a historian, you always have to use your judgment as to, and you won't always get it right. By the way, I mean I have used some of uh, Mace's book because there's nothing else, if you see what I mean. And I've tried to use the bits of his book that I can verify with other sources because that's sort of what we do. The, the one thing I will comment on is. Saul does a phenomenal job. You know, capturing the essence of a character is a very nuanced thing. To do that, you have to have a high degree of, I'll use the word perspicacity, intellectual awareness. And Saul really, because there are things like delving into my dad's letters, which Saul, I know you did in the archives at Auburn. You could read things into that, interpret it different ways, you know, like his decision to flunk out of the V-12 training program. And you really capture the essence of, of what was really in his mind. There's another, Matt, you know, our friend Hugh Ambrose tried to get into some of that. And not to speak ill of Hugh, because he can't speak for himself now, but I, my family was not at all comfortable with some of the conclusions that Hugh came to. Now, to come back to the issue we were just discussing, um, Saul, I think you did a beautiful job in your summation toward the end of Devil Dogs in encapsulating what everybody said about my dad's manuscript when he sent it out to people to read one of them being the individual that you guys are talking about. And like I said, I'm not comfortable talking about him. I had some conversations with him. I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to say any more about him. Okay. And uh, just, just to, you know, to um, uh, follow up on, on that quick point. I mean, uh, Sterling Mace did write as, as, as Henry's pointing out to, to Sledgehammer and he said, 
that's how it was, you know. So he 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 agrees with everybody else. Uh, everybody, of course, by that point, Sledgehammer's in contact with a lot of lot a lot of former guys from K three five. It you know towards the end, of, I think it was the late seventies, early eighties. Henry, you'll put me right on that. Where he mm-hmm. he begins to get back into into contact with all of these guys, and it it's an amazing I, I early eighties, yeah. Yeah, early ages. And it really was a chance for him. You know, he's been going through a healing process, of course, with the writing of the uh, with the old breed. But but also, I think that, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. I think that must have really helped him. It's quite clear from his letters that it did. And the opinion of those guys is what mattered to him. Yes, everybody. He loved the fact that, you know, some of the great writers in the world, the British historian John Keegan were saying nice things. Uh, But what he was really interested in is what the guys who were there with him thought. And to a man, including Sterling Mace, they were positive. All right, I have to just pick Henry up. What on earth was that word you used? Perspicacity. Yeah. Intellectual awareness. Yeah, you, I can make up Being words. Being astute. Well, mate. Yeah, I can make up words as well, mate. It doesn't make you sound any smart. <laughs> just so you know. I'm sorry, Matt. I'll, I'll try to keep it. <laughs> Why do you do it? Why do you belittle me in public? Why do you do that? I'm not belittling you. You're a phenomenally successful British actor. Maybe not as successful as Scott Gibson. <laughs> no one's as successful as Scott Gibson. <laughs> He's got in, a price in his own of- mind. He's got a priceless piece of art behind him for a stone. Uh, um, yeah. Yes, or are you going to say, Scott? I'll, I'll, I'll waffle on later. I was just agreeing with you, really. Oh, yes, good. Okay, good day. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I wonder if I could ask a question here about the work that goes into a book. So you'd speak about uh, your sources and your research. How, what, what is the time from start to finish on a book and how much work does go into it and, and what, what 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 is it i mean you you're looking at all the source material and then what you're just disseminating it down and i'm going to use this and, and then you then you've got to put it into your own words and how yeah, long does yeah. it take I've, I've i've actually written a couple of novels and I'll, I'll i'll stay relatively silent on those because i'm not a natural novelist but right the reason i mentioned fiction is because the process of writing fiction is completely different to writing history in my view writing history is much easier but it is a skill and it takes a lot of experience i think and it takes what henry's touched on now you know i'm glad you said it rather than me henry but i think for you to write effectively non-fiction narrative history you have to have a, a, a feeling about people, you know, why people do what they do. And from a young age, frankly, that's really what I've been interested in. That's why I got interested in history. I was, I was intrigued as to why uh, decisions were made that take us to war, but also the, the, little, the tiny little individual decisions that have to be taken by people who are affected by war in a good and a bad way. And what's so wonderful, again, going back to the, with the old breed is, um, Sanchama makes no bones about stuff that's nasty. And, you know, he's not trying to hide the fact that some of the guys in his own unit in, in, in K35 did some pretty terrible things. Um, if you talk to Richard B. Frank, actually, he's very interesting on this because he's, you know, he, he feels that some American servicemen have got a bad rap about stuff they did in the Second World War uh, and they shouldn't have because, generally speaking, the, the nature of warfare without getting into too much detail meant that it was almost impossible uh, to take anyone prisoner. You know, they were so uh, concerned about the Japanese at the last minute um, attempting to take their lives, even if they were wounded, uh, that they shot first and thought, thought about it later. And that was, a, that was in, in Richard's uh, view, that was a completely logical decision to take. Uh, occasionally towards the end, uh, Okinawa, for example, there were a few more uh, Japanese prisoners taken, but most of those were Okinawan militia. And the ones that were taken, generally speaking, were taken in circumstances in which the guys who were taking them prisoner 
could be pretty certain that, that their lives weren't in danger. So, uh, but, you know, having said all of that, and having said that there were good reasons for, for uh, some of actions that we might describe today in a different context as atrocities, uh, it's the honesty that I, I like. And I would never not include something in any of my books if it, if it, you know, if it puts someone in a bad light. The only reason I occasionally take things out of my book uh, and without going into any detail, too many details, for example, uh, Richard, for example, Richard B. Frank suggested to me, maybe that particular anecdote, you know, maybe it shouldn't be in there because, you know, for, I won't, I won't give you the reasons, but there were, there was a very good reason, which I accepted and I took it out. So, but generally speaking, I, I don't try and hide the fact that, warfare is grim it is and and people reading it need to know this and we need to understand that you know the sort of stuff that's going on in ukraine happens uh in my mind it makes it just a tiny bit less likely that we would make the sort of decision that the crazed leader of russia at the moment has made which is to launch a you know an unprovoked assault on another country now it makes me feel a tiny bit uh more optimistic that that won't happen uh you know, being led by the Brits or the Americans. Now, I may be being ridiculously optimistic about that, but that's my tiny little contribution to world peace, if you see what I mean. Um, we need to be honest about what, what war is. And, and if we are, I think it does make it harder for people to make the decision to go to war. And if you do understand, you, know, those are... people, you do have Perspex Glossary. Is that right, Henry? Did I say that right? I have what? You have Perspex Pers- Glossary? Is that, is that what it is? Perspex Glossary. Well, Perspicacity. Right, that's right. <laughs> Those I was going to ask you about the um, prisoners, uh, prisoners being shot or not taking prisoners, Scott. Did you speak about that on the making of? Uh, well, well, these are the very these are the very things that they wanted. To, I mean, this is what we filmed 2007, 2008. Um, believe me, there were things that I think they wanted to show. But knowing, I mean, it's HBO, it's cable, as as gruesome as it came, some things came off. If you were to. <laughs> I mean, the amount of hand-to-hand combat that went on, like you talk, uh, the, the guys from Bowdoin alone, Andy Haldane, uh, Ev Pope, Medal of Honor recipient, um, and uh, James Douglas, another Bowdoin alum. Um, you know, Ev Pope got his Medal of Honor. He, he took a hill with his, with his platoon. I don't know, there were 32 maybe that went up and 14 came down alive. They ran out of ammunition. They were throwing uh, rocks instead of hand grenades. They were fighting with their fists. Um, Andy in, in Cape Gloucester uh, taking in, um, I think it was Walt's Ridge. I mean, uh, with his K-bar in one hand and a 45 in the other. And, and the Japanese just, you know, they, they, they just come at you. They just, they were fighting. It was like whack-a-mole almost. And I don't mean that to, you know, that sound awful about the, however it sounds but i mean it, it, to to show that they just couldn't show any of that you know at that time i don't know if they could now and and one of those things you know when henry alleges to, or uh, spoke about bruce you know bruce said if, if you'd have done the pacific before band of brothers band of brothers would have been a very different series yeah. um and well, i think some of that stuff really turned people off but that's the way that i mean uh, that to me is what is so different about that in terms of the miniseries and everything like that they just couldn't show any of that and i think that's the ultimate slight sort of tragedy if we're just talking about those two series is that 
those stories out in the Pacific, that there are sort of like forgotten voices. And because of the way it was portrayed far more graphically, people were turned off from it. So they've been kind of turned off from it twice. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it, it's a real shame that, the, the, you know, that if that is the case, it, what, what is interesting is this is a difference in medium because books, people have got much higher, you know, they're, they're able to take, they're able to um, stomach much more, more kind of gruesome detail. I mean, think of one of the best-selling history books in the UK of the last 30 years is Stalingrad. You know, Stalingrad is happening again, as we know, in, U- in Ukraine. Um, Stalingrad is one of the books, of course, I recommended to try and understand what the hell's going on. Because if you try and fight your way through a built-up area, you, you are, you're going you're gonna to create an absolute bloodbath, both for the attackers, the defenders, and, and civilians as well. So... But people, you know, bought that book in huge quantities. Um, Is that Anthony Beaver's book? Yeah, Yeah, Anthony Beaver's book. So it's interesting. And the same with with The Old Breed, which is still selling today. And that is not an easy book to read by any stretch of the imagination, unless you, you know, unless you're a sociopath and you're not really taking on board, um, you know, the points that that Sledgehammer's trying to get across, which is that for an ordinary guy like him, probably a little bit more sensitive, a little, you know, how how can I put it without sounding too, too, uh, you know, too mean with a, a little more reflective. Yeah, more reflective is a good way of putting it. More reflective than the average guy, average 21 year old, 21, 20 year old, 21 year old goes to war and the effect that it has on him. And what, what's so wonderful about him being in that position? Because he easily could have been an officer. And, you know, the beginning of, of my introduction of, of, of uh, Sledgehammer to my story is why he doesn't become an officer. And, and Henry's already referred to that. And I'm sure you know that story before. And but the fact that we got in there with the ordinary guys is gold dust, really, because it, I can tell you from having read many, many diaries, letters, and I'm talking about all my books way back into the 18th and 17th centuries. Uh, most of them tend to be written by officers and they still are today, uh, frankly. And so to get a really, really good account from a from a, an enlisted man, uh, other rank, as we say in the UK, is is, is amazing uh, because you, you you're you're at ground level. You are properly uh, with the other guys. That was also one of the differences of the series, right? Is that the band was more kind of officer centric, yeah. and uh, the Pacific was, um, you know, the the bullet sponges, as Freddie calls them. Yeah, yeah I would say that. I mean, I again, I I'd, I'd need to watch, uh, I'd need to watch it, it again because it's been a while since I've watched either of them actually. But well, I've seen the Pacific more recently for obvious reasons, but. Um, they did develop the officers' characters. They concentrated on the on the officers more uh, in in Band of Brothers. I mean, there were some other important characters in, in, included too. But again, it's probably partly to do with the source material and the material that, that you know that they were able to dig up. You know, as a historian, you're faced with the same problem people making films are faced with, which is how can I flesh out this character? You need something as unique as not only Sledgehammer's book but also his letters. Um, I'm quite surprised, you know, I'll ask you this question, Henry. I'm quite surprised mm-hmm. that those letters haven't been used before to, you know, to, to, I mean, they weren't used, of course, for the, for the, for the Pacific. I suppose they didn't think they needed it. They had the book. Um, but it gives an extra layer or extra layers, in my view, to the, to the, to the sort of nuance of the story. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I, I actually have, I went, I've made several trips to the Auburn archives through the years and, um, around the time, well, probably several years before the miniseries came out, one of the letters I retrieved 
from the archives was the first letter that he wrote to my grandmother while still on Peleliu after they'd been pulled off the front lines. Um, and it's pretty cool to, to see him say, you know, this is sorry for the condition of the paper. It's been in my pack for 32 days. I haven't had a shower, haven't had, you know, nothing. Um, but yeah, I mean, those letters, and then I saw another letter, which is still at the archives where he describes a lot of the things, uh, because he said, I know you're going to want to hear some of what I've seen and done. And he, he goes on to describe, it's about a two page letter. And he goes on to describe some of the, the, the very things that appear, you know, in with the old breed, um, but then, of course, there's a whole slew of letters like while he was at Georgia Tech in the officer's training program. Um, and, and he's, a, as you brought to the fore, Saul, he's starting to lay out, OK, this I'm not going to fight the Japanese with a bunch of textbooks. I want to get into the action, you know, myself and a bunch of the guys in this class. It ended up being 90 out of the 180 uh, purposely flunked themselves out. And he goes into that, starts kind of trying to lay the groundwork with my grandmother and my grandfather and how he's going to do that. You know, I, I, I just want to, there's so much more material now, even just than, you know, five, five years ago, two years ago, but 10, 12 years ago, the source material we got, you know, I got the letters that Andy wrote to mm-hmm. the Dean of Bowden and the football coach, and then everything about the, the whole Pacific war, Plus, obviously, you know, the best one uh, being, uh, you know, your dad's book and, and, and helmet. Um, and there's so much more now. I mean, I've learned so much more, you know, about Andy than uh, I'd say said about 70 percent more. Uh, mm-hmm. Even his personal letters, some of them that uh, other uh, I, people are, have. Have you had um, have you had any contact with with Garrett Shatrowski? Do, do you know what oh, I, yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just. I, I was on a Zoom with him uh, yesterday. Okay. All right. Good. Interview. So you're, you're, you're well up. I mean, really, frankly, the work he's done is astonishing. And I, you know, I, I've only just made contact with him, sadly, because, um, and that, that's been very useful too. And he, he's filmed, filled in some details about ACAC that I wasn't aware of. Uh, one or two snippets from his early letters, um, you know, personal stuff. There's a wonder, wonderful letter, which I'm sure you've heard, heard about before. I don't know whether you're aware of this when you're actually playing him. And he writes back to his, um, his sister in the U.S., talking about the fast women in, in Australia. He's in Melbourne at the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, re- it's very funny, little snippet. And of course, it just gives you a tiny little insight to his character, which some of the letters to the guys at Bowdoin, you don't get so much, of course, because he's dealing with people who you know were authority figures for him. Yes, he's very close to them, particularly the football coach. But nevertheless, he's still writing in the way that a pupil might to a teacher. But writing to his sister, you get a different side of his character. He, he shared with me the last letter that Andy wrote, which was three days before he was killed, um, which was uh, staggering. I mean, it just... Is that the one? No, no, sorry. Yeah, no, I think it's the other one, the one he writes to his girlfriend. Yeah, so that's before. That's Yeah, it was, was, um, I think, a friend back home, or or it might have been, I think it was a friend back home, but just the last couple, you know, couple lines saying, you know, looking forward to seeing you over and chatting over a beer, uh, talk about the last couple of years and um, uh, cross your fingers, you know, that kind of thing. It just, uh, yeah. There's, there's one, one little nuance about Andy, uh, Akak, which I bring out in the, in the book is um, 
there's a certain amount of confusion as to how long servicemen were expected to serve. And of course, this matters because if you only serve two campaigns, you know, you and you've been in Guadalcanal and you've been in New Britain, you're not going to be in Peleliu. And if that had been the case for Akak, he would still be alive. Well, obviously not necessarily today, but he would have lived uh, through the Second World War. Um, but what happened after New Britain is they began to kind of muddy the waters a little bit and say, okay, if you've done two years or you've been in two campaigns, that's fine and we'll consider sending you back. But we're also going to, because we need a lot of veterans for Peleliu, we're going to encourage a lot of you guys to stay. So something, I can't remember the figure, it's in my book, and I'm sure it's in um, in, in, in with the old breed too, something like 4,000 guys who were technically eligible to go home fight on Peleliu. And you can be damn sure, given we know the casualty figures on Peleliu, a lot of those guys don't don't survive. So once again, you know, just to reiterate the point I made at the beginning, this is happenstance, you know, this is bad luck, in a way. And Akak is within, I think, I think he's within two days of the combat for K35 finishing. So he's gone through three camp, three of the toughest campaigns that the US Marines have ever fought. And he's two days away from from getting through it. I mean, you know, you, you you would tear your hair out, really, as a member of his family thinking about that. But going back to my earlier point, that's just it. It's just bad luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A and he was, I mean, initially a, ma- a machine gunner, right? And uh, that last little, you know, position where they were, he 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 wanted to be the one to, to sight the guns. Yeah, very, and, very and good may, point. And may have even... I heard this through Frank Moore, his uh, nephew, that that someone had said he'd, he'd cited them to left that position and then came back to the second position. And then that's when he was hit. Yeah, he I, just didn't, didn't, yeah. I didn't hear that was, extra bit of detail. That's fascinating if, if, if that mm-hmm. is the case. But your point about him being originally in machine guns matters because you know, as, a, as a company commander, you know, what you see at the beginning of the book, and, and um, uh, Henry will know this having now read it, and, and probably you're aware of this anyway, because it's in McHenry's book, is they didn't have a lot of time for the original company commander in K-35. Uh, and in that sense, it does mirror <laughs> it does mirror, mirror the story of the paratroopers, because not every company commander is going to be a great company commander. And what ACAC does is he leads by example. And we, we, you, you can think this is a kind of throwaway thing, but it really matters. Because if you're going to show your, the ordinary soldiers you're prepared to put up with all the deprivations that they're, they're, they're going to face, but also you're going to face as much danger as them. And for a company commander, if you're a bad company commander, you never leave the CP. If you're a good company commander, you go on the line occasionally uh, not always, but occasionally, like Akak and like the guy following him, who's uh, Stanley, used to do. Stumpy Stanley. Stumpy, yeah, Stanley, Stumpy. You put yourself in danger. And it matters because it inspires the whole unit. Uh, and if you stay in, in, in the CP, uh, people will lose. The whole unit will lose a, an element of, of morale. Um, it was the great Napoleon uh, saying, which, by the way, is relevant to the original question about Ukraine. Um, uh, spirit or, or 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 moral to physical is three to one. In other words, if you've got if you've got good morale against a, a, an enemy that doesn't have the same morale, uh, you've got you're three times as powerful as them, even though you've got the same number of of, of soldiers. Um, and it's absolutely true. And it's people like Akak uh, who make that happen for a unit. So that's what I struggled with at certain times filming where. Akak was not 
front and center, just leading, seeing him lead, you know, even the initial landing and I wasn't in the picture vehicle was, yeah. and I, I couldn't understand. I'm like, you're not going to have Andy and like just, just a shot of him first one over kind of thing. Or when Hillbilly gets hit. And uh, I don't even think Haldane was around where Hillbilly was when, when, when Hillbilly was killed, but how they filmed it. Um, but for them, you know, how difficult is it for them to piece everything together? So, but when you see in uh, seven, when Hillbilly gets hit and Haldane and Bergen are at the back, man, I struggled with that. Just instinct, right? You spend so long in those boots. And my own instinct was to be up there, up in the hills, even if that's the way you're going to shoot it. And then, of course, as you know, that's not how Hillbilly died. But it, it, it uh, you know, and I'm like, what am I going to say to, you know, to the like uh, Tim Van Patten? Hey, listen, uh, I want you to reshoot this and, you know. Haldane will be at the front. So um, it, it, it was very difficult that way. It always slightly frustrates me. The, 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 I, I accept, you know, drama is going to take artistic license. We've already discussed that. It's, you know, it happened a lot, by the way, in the, uh, in the Entebbe film. But there are moments, dramatic moments in real life that are worth recreating. And, and you know, mm. and, uh, grim as it is, the death of, of um, uh, Jones, Hillbilly Jones, is an extraordinary heroic moment. Um, and mm. there was no reason not to recreate it as it actually happened, um, to be, to be truthful. But anyway, that's just, this is, uh, you know, one of my, one of my tiny little bugbears with history is that they often in, they're so determined to make a scene that they think is more dramatic, that they miss the power of something that's actually true as well as being dramatic. Well, Bruce and I had, and I won't go into any more detail, but, you know, these guys know Bruce and I had some spirited conversations um, as the filming really got underway on things he wanted to to change. And, and you know, I would just say, well, that the, why are you changing the way, you know, my dad wrote it? And he would come at it from the from the filmmaker standpoint of, well, the director thinks we should do this because ABC, you know, and. So there were things that they changed, things that were compromised on, but it comes back to solve what you're talking about, artistic license. I mean, it's you, you can't make a film and not do some of that. No. So going back to artistic license then, Henry, and with some certain liberties, did Lecky and Sledge actually meet or even not, be in the same Not that I'm system? aware of. Not that I'm aware of. You know, I think that that scene was probably to maybe part of it was to obviously to connect the H21 and K35 units to, to bridge that. And of course you had Sid Phillips that aided in that process, but maybe another part of that Leighton was to create a juxtaposition between the sledge character and the Lecky character, Lecky yeah. being the proverbial bad boy sledge being the, you know, the, the, the proverbial good guy, you know, raised in an ice. I'm not that Lecky wasn't, I don't mean to imply that, but you know, the reflective sentimental guy, Saul, as you said, uh, maybe that scene was to kind of create some of that, but to my knowledge, no, they never met. Because we see it's, that. It, it, it's not improbable that they could have, because, you know, my dad would have gone into the, the library tent on Pavuvu. So, you know, it's it's probable they could have met, but he certainly never said anything to me about it or wrote of, oh, I met Robert Lake. Because you got to think, man, these guys back then, who knew that Robert Lecky was going to write a classic book? Who knew that Eugene Sledge was going to write a classic book? I think that's the point. I mean, what if you think about it, even even when I mean, I've said the company's important. It is important. But actually, the guys, you know, the guys you're, you're, you're betting down with 
are your section. You know, it's it's that right. small. It's, it's literally ten guys. And and the idea that you, of course, the the connection with with Sid was different, Sid Phillips. But but they 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 they, they passed almost in the night on on Pavavu very very briefly. And, and the idea that he would have had any kind of relationship with anyone else in a different unit, I, I don't buy at all. I mean, could he have bumped, could he have literally been in the same building as him at the same time? Yes. But would he have had any personal contact? Very unlikely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about post-war years, Henry? Did did they ever meet up at any um, reunions? Not that I'm aware of because Lecky, now Lecky passed away in what, 2000? Yeah, I think it was 2001. My dad yeah. passed away in 2001. Um but not that I'm aware of, Leighton. I mean, I know, you know, my dad didn't even start going to reunions until, till, till with the old breed came out. And I have made reference to this in other interviews where I saw a letter that he wrote to, to Stumpy and to Bergen right before with the old breed came out. And he was simply saying, guys, I've immersed myself in these hard details of all these things we've wanted to forget because I wanted to get the details right. The book's ready. It's about to be published. I'm laying my pen down and getting back to my career, my family, you know, and it's so ironic. It's a painful letter to read. I mean, it brought me to tears and it brought my mother to tears because my father was saying, I am so ready to rid myself of this because I've written this book. It's out there now. I want to move on with my life. And it really was almost, I can't even describe the emotions it brought to me because I remember he became a victim of his own success. When the book got out there, he couldn't forget it. He people were calling him all the time, and I'm sorry, we're, we're probably going down a rabbit hole. No, but, no, not at all, not at all. Yeah, he couldn't leave it behind. But no, I am never. I, I was never aware of him, you know, meeting or writing with Robert Lecky. Uh, I think Helmet for My Pillow saw maybe set me straight. Was it published in '57? I believe. Yeah. My, um, my you know, so I'm not aware of them ever having had contact or writing to each other or anything like that. But um, going back quickly to who, those two references of uh, uh, Stanley and Bergen, but you're still in touch with those two post-war? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can remember uh, Stumpy Stanley calling the house one day. And, of course, I'm just this dumb teenager. I've been outside shooting basketball. You know, and I come in, the phone rings. My parents were out of town. And you know, this gravelly voiced individual. So well, this is Stumpy Stanley. I'm trying to get in touch with your dad. And, and I, I knew who Stumpy was. I mean, I was pretty familiar. Um, I may have been a dumb teenager, but I'd read the book a couple of times at that point. And I said, no, sir, he's not here, but I'll definitely take a message and pass it on. And, you know, now did I know in that moment, oh, Stumpy Stanley was K-35 commander succeeding ACAC. I probably didn't, you know, retain that detail, but um, he and Bergen stayed in touch or got in touch, uh, Stumpy Stanley, several others. And, and yeah, you know, I mean, there were a lot of late night phone conversations um, to the chagrin of my mother. And it was through your, your father's book as well that Snafu came back into the picture as well. Yeah, I met Snafu. Snafu somehow read the book, became aware of it. And he and his wife came to visit my parents. I met him in 1984. And, uh, you know, I, I look back, I was at that point, 19, 20 years old. I was in college at that point. And, you know, I, I wish I could. I mean, I walked in the house and he, you know, a short, stocky guy sitting there in the living room with his wife. And my dad said, Snafu, this is my son, Henry. Henry, this is Snafu Shelton. I, of course, I immediately knew who Snafu was. And I, I wish mm-hmm. I could have 
you know, I, I looked him in the eye, shook his hand, said, sir, it's an honor to meet you. And, you know, it's good to meet you, Henry. You know, and I wish I could have just stayed in that room and just just absorbed the camaraderie between the two of them. But, you know, 19, 20 years old, I had other things on my mind and I, I moved on. They were trying to, to visit and I wanted to leave them alone. But um, it it was a pleasure to meet him. And I, I actually think my mother recently said it, it on the crawl at the end of the Pacific, it says that Snafu or, or that my dad was one of the pallbearers at Snafu's funeral. My mom says that's actually not correct. That the, the, he was contacted, but there was something he, my dad wasn't able to get over there or something. So I'm not sure that he, he actually was a pallbearer at Snafu's yeah. funeral. Had it been possible, he certainly would have been because I know, um, I mean, they had some lovely visits after the book came out. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Wonderful. Um, I'm going to take a question from Diane. You got a question for us, Diane? Um, not really a question, but despite, just wanted to say that despite the, all of the inaccuracies that are in the Pacific, it was a great introduction for people who doesn't know a thing about Pacific War. I didn't know a thing about it because we don't learn anything about it at, at school in France, at least. I don't know how it is about you, but it's really focused on the ETO and there are plenty of stuff um, to, to say about the ETO. So the, the only thing we knew was uh, Pearl Harbor, which explained why the USA came to World War II. And uh, the Pacific really helped to put some lights on the Marines and all of the Pacific War. And it was after the Pacific came out that some uh, with your breed helmet for my pillow uh, was translated in French. Like uh, so, it's yeah, it's pretty pretty recent. And uh, I think it the Pacific made me curious about it. You know, even if it happened or didn't happen this way, it just made me curious, and that really motivated motivated me to to dig in to make some to do some research about it. So even yeah. Even if some people um, um, aren't really um, convinced about this series, I think it helped a lot of people like me to get more into it. So, How many translations are there? Do you know, Henry? Of my dad's book? Yeah. That's a really good question. It's uh, I short answer, Matt, I don't know. But uh, every, yeah, we'll get like, hey, somebody, my mom will get, notification though it's been put into polish it's been put into german it's you know um but a number i couldn't tell you but it but it's pretty far-reaching you know which is pretty cool and diane makes a great point you know okay so the pacific may not have been completely accurate i mean let's be honest band of brothers was not 100 percent accurate you know you can't do something of that magnitude and have it check every box and be completely Perfect. I mean, the the genius of the Pacific is it does using, as Saul said, wonderful production values. It tells it gets it out there. So someone like Diane can go, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, I mean, we're sitting here today talking about it in 2022 when it was done in 2010. Saul David has just written a fantastic book about K-35, you know, in the last year. And, And the movie was in 2010. You know, I. I think it's wonderful that people even today want to delve into the Pacific war. Certainly all the, all the money that they put into the production from the actor's perspective, going from a boot camp 
I mean, a real boot camp, a very shortened version, thankfully, uh, to doing beach landings on an Amtrak uh, to, you know, uh, fighting through the jungle terrain, the beach terrain, the, the, I mean, Cape Gloucester, all that rain, everything they did and put into it. And then as, you know, up in the Palilu in the hills and everything, when, whenever you'd look towards this, you know, the scene you were doing opposite direction of the camera, obviously, in, in a lot of cases, it looked and felt not obviously, um, you know, weren't real bullets, weren't real bombs, but it sure, uh, it, it, it sure, you know, you're, you're in character and it just put that kind of fear into you. And, um, you know, you can relate to everything around you and all your instincts from all the training and all the other episodes and days that you'd worked and everything like that really fed into it. So it was just, uh, it was brilliant for us. We've established that the Band of Brothers boot camp was way worse than yours. Um, <laughs> much tougher, much tougher in those, in those co- cozy barracks of yours. Oh, let it go. <laughs> let it go, man. And do we have a Welsh translation? That's what I wanted to ask as well. You can do it if you want. <laughs> no. You're going to give us the Welsh translation. Take a bit of time, but <clears throat> it's been a while as well, so I'll have to brush up on those skills. Um, no, um, I, I have, I, I've seen it in Polish, like in, and German as well. I was thinking, oh, yeah, I've seen it in Polish, and I've seen it in German. Obviously, Henry, you know, yeah, it, it's amazing. I've seen Diane's book, and I'm like, fuck, sorry, Polish term. I'd love to get I, I love with the old boot, it's one of my favorite books. You know, I've, I've got a first edition of the hardcover of the, the paperback. And to get various versions, oh, I just absolutely love it. It's such a great. I movie. wish China Marine would be done in Chinese. I mean that. That would be great. Yeah. That would be, which probably isn't going to happen with the the regime in China. But, uh, but Matt, to your question of of translations, I remember in the early nineties when a Japanese lady and a Japanese gentleman came to visit my dad because they wanted to do a Japanese version of the book. And that was really interesting to to come home that day and just kind of sit in the background and and kind of watch that process. Was it was it brought out in uh, Japanese? Yes, Saul. It was. I can't remember the exact year, but there is a Japanese edition of it. My mother's remembrance of that is that the the Japanese edition, and of course, there's a lot of room for interpretation with the the difference in language and and expressions and all that but what my mother remembers about the japanese edition is that it made my father come across as self-recriminating and regretful of some of the things he had done and um Mm. i mean i can i will say with utter certainty that there was none of that in my father i mean Mm. in the many talks i had with him but that was a general impression my mom seemed to have. And did that then play into her being a little bit devious about getting other translations done? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, if it, if it did, I don't remember my parents ever having that conversation and, and expressing that. Okay. Sorry, Sol, I interrupted you. No, talking on the subject of, of translations, it's very interesting. With Crucible of Hell, which is my first book on the Pacific, um, on Okinawa, came out a, a couple of years ago, and it is it was brought out in Chinese. Was it? Okay. A tiny bit surprised about that. And, and, and then I thought, well, actually, of course, if there is still this, you know, this legacy of bitterness, which, if anything, has, has kind of ramped up in recent years, maybe that's something to do with it on the one hand. 
But then I also got an offer from a Japanese publisher, which they then withdrew, uh, probably when they read the manuscript properly. Um, <laughs> not that there's anything anti-Japanese in the manuscript in, in any sense, any more than there right. is in, in uh, Sledgehammer's book. It's just the, the level of, you know, how can you put it, uh, the determination of, uh, of the Japanese to fight to the finish, you know, because they've been brainwashed that way and that was part of their military culture and all the reasons we already know about. Um, it does sound shocking to a modern audience, particularly a modern Japanese audience that, uh, you know, weren't brought up with those sort of values. So I was surprised they they were going to sign the contract uh, and I was also <laughs> disappointed when they pulled out because I thought this was telling me actually that the Japanese are prepared to look back, you know, dispassionately and honestly on, on their past. And it was a real shame. Having said all of that, it's great that um, Sledgehammer's book was brought out, but if they, if they adapted it to make it look like, you know, the, the Marines were a little bit regretful about what they'd done, you know, that that's dishonest and no, no translation should go down that track. Yeah, no, and I, I, I never saw like in black and white, something that made me go, Oh yeah, they make my dad sound regretful that he, did this or did that i never saw physical proof of that but my mother seemed to have that that general impression but you know look guys i've talked about this before i mean my father had uh, a lot of respect for the japanese in modern terms in modern day times and i'm relating that to the 1980s and 90s um but he also felt very strongly that what happened and Saul, you brought up richard franks i'm reading tower of skulls right now i'm about 200 pages into it um, and it's certainly understandable if the Chinese to this day hold bitterness towards the Japanese. I mean, how could they not? Mm. You know, but my father was ever the pragmatist. I mean, the very first car I bought out of college was a Honda CRX in 1988. And I asked my dad, I said, well, I, I guess you don't much care for this being a Japanese car. And he said, it's a consumer product and they build a better one than we do. Yeah. When I spoke with him, you know, met RV and hanging out with him, and he, he said, um, you know, coming back home, I think maybe sometime when they were traveling with the family or something like that, just driving on a highway. And if another car passed that thought they were Japanese, that may or may not have been, the, the feelings that he would get. And he said, I, I, I have nothing against the Japanese people but I will never forgive the Japanese soldier. I, I can remember walking through an airport with my parents uh, when I was probably about 10 years old and we had gone to pick somebody up or, or something. I really don't remember, but, um, or it may have been after with the old read came out. Um, but a group of Japanese tourists or something had gotten off an airplane and were walking through and, and they were conversing very loudly with each other. And, you know, my, my dad kind of bristled up. He, he said, man, sometimes just hearing it just takes me back to what we would hear at night when they would be talking amongst them. So he said it just, you know, he, I could tell he was struggling with it. You know, not that he wanted to go do something horrible to these people who were living peaceful lives. That wasn't the point, mm -hmm. but it was evocative. It, it brought back some memories in that moment. But I heard him speak on the record many times and say the Japanese have a lot on the ball. They've, they're very disciplined. Uh, they're very dedicated people. Uh, but to their conduct in World War II, that was something he never felt should be glossed over or misrepresented or forgotten. Here's one for, for everyone. I'm, I, the Japanese and their culture, do they look back in that time and address that? 
that you know look back to World War Two and address the things that they did in a way that I can't remember. I suppose, I'm trying to get my word in all right. Well, can I can I carry on from that? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, absolutely. Well, because after World War Two in, in in Germany, you had that next generation that became the sort of Bader Meinhof complex that were just all anti-Nazi. Is, right. is, there, is there anything that's happened in Japan similar sort of reactionary? They they had there were a couple of revolutionary groups there actually. I mean, they they had these groups all over the world. But it's you make a very good point because it's not a coincidence that they grew up in, in particularly in Italy. <laughs> Uh, Germany and Japan. I mean, those three countries that had all had the, you know, the kind of quite extreme nationalist governments, um, you know, and imperial ambitions, not a coincidence at all. And yet at the same time, the, the Japanese, in my view, haven't really to this day properly uh, look back and acknowledge their, their, their war guilt, particularly in relation to China. Uh, one of the reasons they haven't, of course, is because the emperor was never uh, deposed. That was a pretty, uh, how can you put it, um, pragmatic decision by the Americans. In, in Richard Franks's view, the right decision, I, I think I agree with him, which is that um, it would guarantee that the military were going to lay down their arms or as close as guarantee that that, that mm-hmm. would be the case. And you wouldn't have a long running you know, scenario, which we may get in Ukraine, where you know, people don't accept the reality. And, there's a, you know, and, there, and there, therefore, there'd be a guerrilla war for years afterwards, a lot of American servicemen <laughs> losing their lives at the occupation force in Japan. So but by not deposing the emperor and exposing him as a war criminal, I think it allowed them to tell a different narrative of, of their role in the Second World War that's not honest. Um, you know, I know all of this sounds quite quite tough, quite um, hard hitting, but frankly, that's the way it is. And, and if you want a local connect, uh, a local similarity to that, you, you could say the French haven't really come to terms with their Second World War either. Uh, the role that some people played collaborating with the Germans as opposed to the member of the number of people who were allegedly members of the resistance, um, which massively multiplied in the last year or two of the war when it was clearly uh, safer to do so. Well, and, you know, Richard, I think Richard Frank, maybe I saw him bring this out in an interview. I may not be remembering correctly, but it's a nuanced thing to, to Leighton's question. I mean, do the Japanese to this day acknowledge Unit 731 and biological experimentation and the things that were going on? Maybe some of them acknowledge that and the evils of that. But then do they look at their expansion of what they call the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere? You know, they looked on that as pushing back on colonialist powers, and they were trying to expand themselves and were being wrongfully kept from doing that. I mean, Saul, am, am I correct? I mean, you're you're better the expert on that than I am, but just the general notion, they may not look at that like, well, we were just trying to further our own influence. You know, there's nothing inherently evil with that. Well, it's a bit like the, it's, it's a bit like the, you know, the broader sort of culture war debate that's going on in the US and the UK, which is that you, you home in on a particular group and said everything that's happened that's bad is because of them. And the reason that I make that example is because Anything to do with white imperialism is bad. Anything to do with anyone else's, you know, form of imperialism by the nature of the argument is OK. Uh, of course, it isn't OK. And what the Japanese were trying to do, I, it's not just what they were trying to do. You know, uh, you, you could sort of get your head around the idea that they might want to expand their economic influence to a certain extent. It's the way they were doing it and the brutal way that they were doing it. Right. And frankly, the racist way they were doing it, because the idea that this was all a bunch of uh, Asians all in it together and looking after each other, we know wasn't the case they were uh, the way they treated the Chinese and of course not just the Chinese the the groups in a lot of the islands that, that they took over um, uh, 
gave the lie to any kind of sense of fellowship among Asians. They, they very much wanted to dominate and effectively enslave those populations. And just to further back to your point, that's something that you said about the emperor as a war criminal. How, what was his influence over his military? Or what, I, I was sort of him as a sort of weird disassociated character who's floated around on a cloud type of thing. And, and his generals kind of ran the army. Was that not the case then? No, he, he had much more, um, as you will see from uh, reading Richard's books, um, he, he had a much more hands-on uh, role. He was effectively considered by most of the Japanese population at that time as, 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 a, as a demigod. Um, he, he was the, the sort of last word, you know, so when the, when, the, when the soldiers were dying all across the empire during the Second World War, it was always in the name of the emperor. So he still had very real political influence. Now, was he party to every single decision that was taken? Uh, probably not. Did he have an overall sense of what was going on? And was he was he pro it? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, and by the way, I use those words advisedly. I'm, I'm not just throwing, uh, you know, <laughs> pains against the wall here. If you look at the detail of the decision making of the first two or three years of the Second World War in, and, and before that, in fact, in the China, which is what Richard B. Frank's book reminds us very much that the Second World War, as far as Asia is concerned, begins before 1939 or 41. Um, you can see that the emperor plays a, a really central uh, and key role in, in that decision making process. Hmm. Fascinating. <sighs> Well, guys, uh, we've had you on for an hour and a half. Uh, so I'm going to round things up, but I'm really tempted to do a third one of these. <laughs> because I think we're just scratching the surface. This has been fine. Henry, do you want to come That's back brilliant. and do it? Should we do a third one? Should we make it a trilogy? If we Gerald. do it with Saul. Saul will come back. Yeah, no pressure, Saul. No pressure. Yeah, I'd oh, love to come back and talk. And, and, you know, and I don't know what, what, your, what your sort of timing, your timing of thinking is. This has been great, great. And it's wonderful, actually, to have this sort of cross-fertilization of history, the drama, the, you know, the, 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 the son of a participant, and in my case, the practitioner. And, the, you know, it's, this is what history should be like. It's, it's a kind of multifaceted discipline that gives us a little bit of insight into what's happening in the world today, but, but informs us about, you know, human nature. And I think we're all interested in that, aren't we? So um, I've done a lot of podcasts, by the way, and this has been one of the most interesting that I've been involved in. So thank you guys. And I'd love to do it again. Wonderful. I feel like if it was a school, we'd be the cool teachers. You know, the teachers that you just call them by their, their first name instead of sir and that kind of stuff. That will be us. <laughs> <laughs> and have no respect. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. And I'd like to personally thank Diane, obviously. So it's been a pleasure. Leighton, meh. Uh, Scott Gibson, <laughs> I don't know what you were doing in the first place. And Henry Sledge, I love you. Uh, we, <laughs> we shall meet Anana Six again and carry on, shall we? Leighton, this has been wonderful. Wonderful. Brilliant. Leighton, far out another day. I'm really, really looking forward to this one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Brilliant. Guys, thank you so much. I must put my daughter to bed. Uh, cheers, guys. <laughs> cheers, guys. Cheers, guys. <laughs>